you think about your own sexuality? Do you think about your own sexuality? What did your parents teach you about sex and sexuality? Were you comfortable with your own body? Today's guest is an African-centered social worker, cultural and clinical sexologist, a sexual epistemologist, an autoethnographer. And if you're wondering what all this means, stay right where you are because we're going to meet today's guest in just a moment. Hello, everyone. My name is Pamela Brewer, and I am delighted to welcome you to this edition of Mind Talk. And I'm very pleased to introduce you to Dr. Zalika, Dr. Zalika S. Hepworth Clark. Dr. Clark has studied in New York, Amsterdam, Ghana, Uganda, Kenya, my goodness, but now she's in the United States. Dr. Clark, welcome to Mind Talk. Thank you so much. Greetings. Dr. Clark, tell us a little bit about your uh, various areas of expertise. You wear many hats. So let's start with the first one, an African-centered social worker. What does that mean? Great. Um, Well, I studied, I have my master's in social work from Widener University, and I also uh, was active in the National Association of Black Social Workers. I was president of my chapter at grad school at Widener, and um, I'm a graduate of the African-Centered Social Work Program from the Academy of the NABSW, the National Association of Black Social Workers. And so basically, it focuses on um, healing from uh, methods that are centered on people of African descent. So a lot of the things that I learned in terms of Um, interventions or healing were generalized or based off of white populations that may not be culturally sensitive. So I was really interested in being able to uplift the black community and use as many tools as possible. So learning from different, um, having a different awareness of spiritual systems or just different approaches or different things to consider when being culturally sensitive for the black um, for black folks. So does that mean that your practice is exclusively persons of color? No, I work with anyone. Um, so there, it's definitely, I'm not excluding anyone, but I do have more tools when working with um, people of color. Okay. And tell us what a cultural and clinical sexologist is. Okay, so sexology is basically the scientific study of sex and sexuality. And there's many different types of sexologists. Um, people ha- like there's different types of cooks, so we have different specializations. And I focus on the cultural aspects of sexuality, so really interested in the cultural influence. Uh, that it has on our understanding of sexuality and gender. And a clinical sexologist, as um, I'm trained to do sex therapy or to be able to use clinical interventions to assist couples or people practicing non-monogamy or individuals that are having challenges in relationships or with their sexuality, their orientation, their gender expression, 
or um, any sexual issues that may come up in the bedroom or elsewhere. Okay. I'm going to ask you some questions about that, but at the moment I'd like you to explain what a sexual epistemologist is. Okay, yes. So I also identify as a sexosopher, so I study the philosophy of sexuality, and in particular I'm interested, I love epistemology or the way we know what we know, the study of knowledge, and so really interested in how sexual knowledge is, um, transmitted, received, interpreted, understood, um, and so that's kind of where what a sexual epistemologist is. Um, I study the way sexual knowledge is um, understood in different contexts, and specifically looking at African uh, ways of knowing uh, that can that I specialize in just different ways of knowing about sexuality. So there's not one way of understanding sexuality, and a lot of times it's influenced by how we understand what a human is or um, relations. And so different, um, many different pieces to consider when looking at sexuality. So one of my areas of specialty is um, sexual knowledge, how, how we understand how knowledge is created, kind of th- that kind of thing. And an autoethnographer, that is what? Um, I said, so auto is self and ethnographies are the study of culture and writing. So I specialize the, the method of research that I chose was to um, study myself interacting in a culture with a critical lens. Um, so I went to Brazil and in traveling, I learned so much about myself through um, my environment and then different environments. So autoethnography is really the study of self and using different um, scientific methods grounded in anthropology. And I specialized in, or I developed a decolonizing autoethnography. So I'm really committed to decolonizing my mind and sexuality and myself, but also just unlearning negative effects of colonialism and just really thinking critically about um, history and the effects that it has on myself and systems of oppression like patriarchy and how that may influence my understanding of humans and human interactions. The idea, a few minutes ago, as you were describing your work as a cultural and clinical sexologist, you attached a word to sex or a concept to sex um, that people in this country perhaps don't think about uh, putting the two together. And you talked about the science of... Mm -hmm. Talk to us about the science of sex and and uh, sensuality. People don't think about that okay. in America, or yeah. perhaps I'm wrong. What do you think? Yeah, um, it's a growing field. You have the uh, Quad S is a scientific study of sexuality society. So there's actually many um, sexual scientists out there, and most sexual scientists scientists are studying um, just 
different aspects of sexuality. You know, we need statistics to understand um, different aspects of sexuality and behaviors. Um, and there's lots of different approaches, so many different important studies that are out there that um, can give us information. Ooh, I don't even know where to start because there's just so many different directions. Even thinking about, um, I don't know, like Masters and Johnson's work from the 1960s, which there was a show, um, Masters of Sex, that was based off of their work. And they, they scientifically studied um, different things, um, like the sexual response cycle. So getting a lot of data in terms of how people respond to or how the body functions in and what is an orgasm. And there's lots of different debates about different parts of the body and, um, you know, what it, so many questions that still need answers to. So having a, me a solid method um, to understand and study both sex and um, humans is really important for different information to consider when we talk about fact facts and um, just having a comprehensive um, information for sexuality education. Did you come to be interested in this field and this pursuit of study? Uh, and I ask that in part because, you know, in many African-American communities, you can talk about a whole bunch of stuff, but you don't really talk about sex. Right. Um, I, have to, I have to acknowledge that I had a lot of, freedom in terms of what I was allowed to study. My mom really, she told me I could study whatever I wanted. I was like, really? <laughs> <laughs> so I had free, you know, she would take me into Barnes and Nobles or bookstores and she didn't limit what section I could go in. And I found myself in help, uh, self-help sections or I was really interested in religion and psychology and sexuality. It was something um, I was really interested in. I loved the fact that it was a taboo subject, yet it was really important because when I thought about how I got here or how people get pregnant, it just came up. And, and actually also traveling, um, I'm a Jamaican, so I'm half Jamaican, half American. And so I got different messages about sexuality in America that I that I did in Jamaica and so when I saw the differences it made me kind of think critically about who I was and what I took for granted or what I thought was normal um, I just was able to think about it in different ways like I'm lighter skinned but in America I'm perceived as 
black in Jamaica I was perceived as white or um, you know we drive right-handed on the right-hand side left-hand side and driving in Jamaica so a lot of things I kind of took for granted in one place was was I couldn't make those assumptions in other places or even you know the ideals like my parents were never married but in America that was such a big deal like I remember older people like, oh, are you okay? You know, uh, just kind of pathologizing my, my, because my parents weren't married. But in Jamaica, I was like, well, are your parents alive? Yes. Well, then what's the problem? <laughs> so I was like, oh, okay. It's, it's a problem. What's a problem in America is not a problem in Jamaica. So is it really, I got to define if it was a problem for me or not. But I got to see that, um, there was a lot of different things, different factors that contributed to the way I understood myself and how people interact. The, so, yeah. um, the, the examples that you give are, are really interesting. Uh, I wonder um, if, if you can identify for us some of the stunning differences that you have noticed. I mean, you, you've studied cultures from all over the world. Um, are there any particularly stunning differences that you've discovered with respect to the the comfort even in terms of societies talking about sex, thinking about sex? Oh, yeah. Wow. Um, there's so many different cultures, and even within Jamaica, with so many diverse, rich, cultural, and spiritual systems that work that affect, you know, each individual is very different and each family is different. And so just acknowledging the diversity within each community, within each country, within there's so many microcosms and levels to it, but there's huge, I spent to 62 countries traveling and I do love to observe different um, ways human interact. So when I was traveling in West Africa, I saw men holding hands. And at first I was like, oh, maybe they're, well, I, in America, if I saw two men holding hands, I would kind of assume that they were lovers. But actually, that wasn't the case. They were just, it's a way of showing friendship. And it was just kind of, they were just walking together. They were connected with their pinkies. And so I even what it means to hold hands or the way we greet each other um, or what's considered taboo, what should be avoided. All those things are very um, culturally based for me in my understanding of it in Brazil. Um, wow, I mean, going to the beach was a different experience. They have a different aesthetic. It's like when I wore my bikini, I was trying to... <laughs> Uh, cover up as much as possible and I had an elder woman saying no you know you should squish your bikini and show more of your body and I was like oh okay <laughs> you know it's not <laughs> I or you know there's just so many different ways of looking at um, even kissing you know um, the first thing that I learned when I was traveling in um, I went to Salvador during Carnival, and which is in Brazil, and um, I learned to say no beiju, which is no kiss, 
because there was the energy was so high and people were just like randomly making out with people <laughs> and just moving on. And I was like, Hey, you don't want to know my name or do you want to dance first? They just went to kiss me. And I, so I, I was like, well, this is very different because when I go out places, um, it's just even how we tell each other we're interested. It's very different. When I was in Ghana and someone would offer to buy me a drink, I was I was hesitant because I was like, well, maybe they're going to think that I owe them something or, but it was just very different. It was just like, they just wanted to get buy me a drink with no expectations of anything, not even a conversation, although that would be nice, but it wasn't expected. Whereas in the United States, I feel like it's used to kind of not manipulate, but it's like, oh, I gave you something now. Can you give me something in return, like a dance or your number or something? There seems to be an expectation with that. So, again, just kind of having different, being open-minded to different ways of interacting with people. And, um, yeah, so, yeah. You do um, a lot of work in the LGBTQ community. Um, For those who don't know what LBGTQ references. Can you just tell us? Sure. Um, I will tell you a few things. Um, L, lesbian, gay, bi, bisexual, transgender, and queer. Um, it also goes, there's, you know, sometimes it's LGBTQ, QIA, so I'll keep going with the alphabet. Um, okay. There's, um, there's queer, there's questioning, there's intersex, there's two-spirit of Native folks, um, and there's also kink is sometimes a part of that uh, acronym. There's um, pansexual, polysexual. There's so many different non-heterosexual orientations that are out there. Um, I'd love to go over them, but those are the the main ones are lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, questioning, intersexual, and um, two-spirit, LGBTQQIA, asexual. That's the one that I'm missing, (laughs) asexual. Intersexual, what does that mean? Um, The pejorative that was used to describe this population was hermaphrodite. Um, So intersexuals are born with both masculine and feminine biological um, components. So it could be someone born with um, both um, aspects of uh, both male and female parts. (laughs) I don't know how much I can say biologically, Um, but someone maybe with an ovary and a testy or someone with um, breasts but also a penis. There's many different ways of being human. And even on a chromosomal level, we talk about XX chromosomes being associated with women and XY chromosomes being associated with males. But you have women with Y chromosomes and you have men with XX chromosomes. And you also have XXY chromosomes. You have XXX chromosomes. Like there's so many different chromosomal combinations that may not even match up your biological aspects. But in terms of the intersexual community, that is about 
one to two percent of the population. A lot of times people may not even know that they're born intersex, Mm -hmm. but um, they find out in various ways, usually through puberty. Um, And often historically, when someone was born with ambiguous genitalia, they would have um, genital surgeries at a very early age. So someone born with a micropenis, for example, um, might uh, the doctors may suggest to raise the child as a as a, a female and to remove the um, that genitalia so that they are trying to make them into a female and then they grow up and they they don't really feel they feel more masculine or they may they didn't even know that they had surgery a lot of terrible stories that. Uh, um, I've heard about from the intersexual community, um, but it is definitely, this is why it's problematic to just assume that there's only two genders, male or female, when even biologically we have people that are literally both, and there's many different ways that that shows up in individuals. You know, it's interesting as you talk about um, the the chromosomal differences. I think about the people who say that y- it is a choice to be straight or gay. It is a choice to be uh, lesbian or any of those things. And mm-hmm. clearly, y- you're not choosing your chromosomal makeup. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and also like, how would who are they if you have both body both parts, you know, who, who you choose, what does that even mean? You know, it's interesting, right. like how they, would they even identify if they can, and actually identity is different than um, your behavior sometimes, but yeah, so there's a lot of, there's so much variation. So it's really hard to kind of force people into boxes. And in terms of choice, um, do you choose who you love? Is that something you feel that you choose? I think that's a larger question. Can, did you choose who you fell in love with? Can you choose who you love? Some people do feel like it's a choice. Um, and others feel like, well, it's just the feeling that I got when I saw this person. It was just, maybe it was fate. You know, maybe it's something larger than just a choice. But there are biological factors in terms of what is, love or being in love it is that there's uh, a science between attraction of individuals and um, humans have the ability to be attracted to a number of different things even beyond types of humans and we will tend to have preferences and um, yeah so I don't there's many choices that we make and I want to be clear that we we probably have a lot more choice than we realize in terms of our day-to-day activities, but there's also um, an inherent kind of essence about who we are. And this, and there's a truth that can only be realized through the self. Like Dr. Clark, there's an organization that you work with in Washington, D.C., and one of their programs is entitled Center Global. Can you tell us a little about that? Sure. Um, Center Global works with um, asylum seekers 
that uh, have uh, entered the United States, um, Center Global, within the context of the D.C. Center for the LGBT Community. We work with asylum seekers um, that um, usually have to flee their country due to violent circumstances because they were not heterosexual. I see. Um, So, yeah, so that people face uh, being murdered and have no forms of safety in many different countries, and they just want, they just want to live. So they end up leaving. And so the Center Global Program that I work with, um, we give, when you're seeking asylum, you're not allowed to work. And so during the process, um, it's kind of challenging, but we provide some financial assistance in terms of uh, a gift gift card for food and uh, public transportation that we have a few um, clients that we support through the program, but also just supporting refugee um, asylum seekers for um, different housing or preparing for the job market and um, just safety. So if, if yes, Okay, great. And being specific, like parent-child conversations about sexuality or about orientation okay, can be helpful. Terrific. If you had a wish for the way in which we as humans think about ourselves and our sex and our sexuality and sensuality, what would it be? Mm, um, pleasure is your birthright and I hope for non-judgmental and compassionate approach to finding your truth and authentic way of being and um, yeah I, I'm love you know I think you have the right to love. So and being compassionate that. with yourself. Uh, yeah, self-compassion. Is, is certainly, as well as hopefully the compassion of those who care about you as an individual, not you who you love. Yes, I just, I just love the diversity of love. And I, I hope that we can... Um, understand that there are many different ways of knowing love and if we can hold space for us to be, to live in our truth. And yeah. Dr. Zalika S. Hepworth-Clark, you have been listening to her wisdom for this hour. Dr. Clark, is there a way for people to be in touch with you or ask questions? Sure. I would email me at zalika at gmail.com. Z as in zebra, E as in elephant, L as in lake, A as in apple, I as in igloo, K as in kite, A as in apple at gmail.com. Okay. Can you spell that one more time for us? Z-E-L-A-I-K-A. Okay. At gmail.com. Terrific. Thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing your wisdom with us on Mind Talk. Thank you. Peace, pleasure, power, and abundance. <laughs> 
And folks, thank you for joining us today on this edition of Mind Talk. Mind Talk is brought to you daily as an educational public service, and it is not intended to replace any work that you may choose to do with a mental health, medical health, or other professional. You can listen to Mind Talk on demand by going to mindtalk.org. You can also download the Mind Talk app from your iTunes or Google Play Store. Mind Talk is produced by Jim Brown and 26 by 2 Communications. I'd love to know where in the world you are as you're listening today, so do send an email to me. That's Pamela, P-A-M-E-L-A, at mindtalk.org. Any questions or comments you may have about the program, you can also send to Pamela at mindtalk.org. And remember always, if it's unacceptable, then it's unacceptable. You take care. Thank you.